On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who'd drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink but you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, and there they stayed for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you very much, Amanda. Morning, everybody. It's lovely to be with you. I don't, um, I don't know what soul-crushing responsibilities you've been given this week. I've, um, I've been given a very serious job this morning. Um, Charlotte came to me, and she gave me this rabbit thing. You say, ah, this is a shakedown from Charlotte to try and take as many toys as she possibly can into the children's group. And Alice has told her that she's not allowed to take it, so I've been given it to look after. But she got it yesterday, a sleepover. Now, can you hear the noise? What noise is that? A cat. What animal is it? A rabbit. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. In, in lots of ways, this is the perfect sermon prop for this morning, as we'll, um, I, might, I might rest it so you can see it. Go on. I don't teach you this kind of trick at Vicar School. Nice. There we go. It's, um, do I need teddies? I've, no, I've got lots of teddies, Doris. No, no I don't, does anyone else need a teddy? No. Helen Reynolds would like a teddy. Have you got a teddy for Helen? Helen Reynolds? If you bring one in for Helen next week, she'd love one. Thank you. She sleeps with one at night. Thank you. No, it's all right. When, you, when you've got teddies to offer Doris, you can have the mic. Don't worry about it. I am, in lots of ways, the, the silliness of that and a child being entertained by it cuts right to the heart of what we're talking about this morning. So um, I put that up partly for my own amusement, but also partly so you can hold that in the back of your head 
as we think about what we're talking about this morning. We're, um, we're continuing through our sermon series, going through the miracles that Jesus performed. And we've, we've wound up right at the start of the Gospel of John, thinking about water being turned into wine. We're going to pray together as we begin. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you again for the miracles that you perform, for the things that you do for us on a day-to-day basis, for the love that sustains us, for the friendships that reflect who you are, for the times when you break into our world and we discover something dramatic about who you are and who you've made us to be. And Jesus, we pray that as we gather together this morning, we would glimpse you. In your name we pray. Amen. Don't worry, Doris. If you can't hear me, you'll be fine. I'm going um, to begin uh, by reading a poem this morning from someone called David White, and it's called Everything is Waiting for You. Your great mistake is to act the drama as if you were alone, as if life were a progressive and cunning crime with no witness to the tiny hidden transgressions. To feel abandoned is to deny the intimacy of your surroundings. Surely, even you at times have felt the grand array, the swelling presence and the chorus crowding out your solo voice. You must note the way the soap dish enables you, or the window latch grants you freedom. Alertness is the hidden discipline of familiarity. The stairs are your mentor of things. To come, the doors have always been there. To frighten you and invite you. And the tiny speaker in your phone is the dream ladder to divinity. Put down the weight of your aloneness and ease into the conversation. The kettle is singing, even as it pours you a drink. The cooking pots have left their arrogant aloofness and seeing the good in you at last. All the birds and creatures of the world are unutterably themselves, for everything is waiting for you. That's a good poem, isn't it? I like that poem because it speaks to us of the importance of connection and friendship and withdraw into isolation, right? And when we do that, when we retreat and we withdraw, it's so easy for us to sit in judgment on other people, on the way that they live their lives, on the decisions that they make. And yet that is anti-gospel. That's against the way that Jesus calls us to live because he calls us to live life in full relationship with each other, doesn't he? Lives that are full of joy and meaning and purpose very, very hard to find a rich life if you live alone, isn't it? And you just shut the door and you never leave the house and you never speak to anyone. But we find the joy that Jesus wants us to bring, the joy that's at the center of the kingdom of God in friendship and relationship with each other, don't we? I am... I had the privilege of going to James Hutchinson's wedding in November. Um, we were given a couple of kids to take care of and keep an eye on. And um, I don't know if you've been to many weddings before, but weddings are great as an adult. As a kid, weddings are just a bit too long, aren't they? You spend too long chatting at the start, and then dinner just takes too long. And we were trying to keep these kids sat down around a table. And um, very thoughtfully, the bride and groom had provided for us little bottles of bubbles. And so we'd had our like fancy startery thing, and we were waiting for our main course. And um, 
the kids were getting restless, I was getting restless, and so we opened the, um, the jar of bubbles, and I started to blow it. And, and one of the kids started to dance. He, um, he did something called twerking. Do you know what twerking is? I don't know if Blair's going to demonstrate twerking for us. No, he's not. I tried to explain it to the 9 o'clock, but I didn't really want to go into too much detail. Twerking, it's like a whole body dance, but you particularly focus on like, moving your bum a lot. And after a while, he was dancing in the bubbles, and he realized that he could pop the bubbles on his bum. Goodness me, man, you've never seen a kid have so much fun as this child at a wedding realizing that they can pop bubbles on their bum. And in that moment, the kingdom of God was close at hand. So easy, so often do we think that the kingdom of God is found in the serious things. And it is. The kingdom of God is found in serious things. But as Christians, goodness me, we do really, really well at taking life seriously, don't we? And at thinking of ourselves as kind of moral beings. And we try and we do the right thing in the right way at the right time, but Jesus calls us to lives that are full of abundant joy. Do you know, sometimes the best way to find the kingdom of God is to burst bubbles on your bum, or it's to put the wrong noise in a cuddly toy. If Charlotte had been with us, there is literally no way we would have let her get away with that, because they they're at Build-A-Bear. We never go to Build-A-Bear, because it's so freaking expensive. I would have said, that's such a waste. There's no way you're doing it, but she's delighted with that. She, um, she hid it behind her back yesterday and squeezed the, the noise thing and got me to try and guess what animal she was holding. And then when she showed me it wasn't a cat, but it was a rabbit, she was delighted. The kingdom of God is present in those moments. How much easier is it for children to find the kingdom of God? Jesus says it, come to me like you're a little child. Come to me full of silliness, full of playfulness. Come to me bursting bubbles on your bum and putting the wrong noise in a cuddly toy, because that's where joy is, and where there's joy, there's the kingdom of God. At the start of John's gospel, he calls his first five followers, and um, Jesus should be serious. He should be serious, because when you call your followers for the first time, there's two options for what you're meant to do. The first is, when you gather your followers together as a rabbi, you call them towards yourself. The first thing you should do is you should take them to the desert. You should take them to the desert to fast and pray as you get things going. You should take them for a serious religious experience to set them up. Because Jesus is setting these guys up for the next three years with him. And then he's setting them up for the next 30 when they have to build the church. This is freaking serious, right? This is serious. I don't know what you're doing with the rest of your life, but that's serious stuff. And so Jesus should be setting them up for that. They should go to the desert. The other option Jesus got for them is these lads, they dropped out of the temple before they'd finished their religious education. So he should take them back to school and make sure that they get a proper religious education so that they know all of the Torah. They know all of the prophets. They know how everything is hung together and how it all works. But he doesn't do it. Instead, Jesus says that the best way to prepare yourself for the life that he has for you is to go to a party. It's to go to a wedding. And you know Jesus, right? He's not going to be sitting in the corner at a wedding, talking with one or two mates in hushed tones, but Jesus is going to dance. And it's going to be embarrassing. And it might not be a bubbles on your bum kind of dancing, but it's going to be full 
and whole. And he's not just going to chat to a couple of people, but he's going to talk to everyone. And he's going to particularly spot you if you're feeling a bit lost at the wedding and if you don't have friends there because Jesus always has his eyes out for people on the edges and on the margins, right? But Jesus enters into the rhythm and the flow and the ebb of this wedding because wherever there's joy, you'll be sure to find Jesus dancing. And he'll have eaten all of the food and he'll have drunk the wine or the best Coke or whatever it is that they're serving. They'll have had the best possible time. Jesus would have been the life and soul of this wedding. And then the wine runs out. Man, that is a freaking disaster. It's day three of a wedding. Uh, Weddings are meant to go for seven days. So often people will say, do you know what? This is bad planning. You're meant to buy enough wine for seven days. You're meant to work it all out, make sure you've got enough bottles in and you've run out on day three, and people say it's bad planning. I think that's rubbish. I don't think this wedding is badly planned, because that bad planning is just too much, isn't it? To have bought less than half of the amount of wine that you're meant to have. So people suggest that instead, the bride and the groom are very poor, that they don't have enough, that they're unable to buy all of the wine that they need for the wedding. And that's really bad news. Because if you run out of wine at your wedding, then what that tells everyone is that the groom's family can't provide for the new member of their family. And everyone's already been thinking it, kind of, that maybe this isn't a good marriage, that maybe they won't be well provided for or well taken care of, and there's already been mumblings and mutterings, and this is just going to prove it. It's going to cause shame and dishonor on the family. It's going to be embarrassing for everyone. And then on top of that, there's a kind of urban myth that if you run out of wine at your wedding, it curses your marriage. It brings bad luck. So when the wedding, when the wine runs out, it's not just about wine running out. It's about shame on a family. It's about poverty. It's about a marriage that might be cursed. And so Mary hears about it and she says, Jesus, you've got to do something. Now, I don't know what Mary expects Jesus to do. I don't know that she expects Jesus to suddenly magic up a lot of wine. I don't think that was necessarily Mary's obvious outcome, but just that she knows that Jesus can do something. Often Mary in this story is kind of portrayed as a stroppy mum who's a bit pushy, right? And she's trying to like push Jesus out into the center of the stage before it's Jesus's time. But we never see Mary do that anywhere else in the Gospels, right? Mary is never given to us as a pushy, stroppy, showy-offy kind of mum. I think Mary knows this couple better than Jesus, and she knows the situation that they're in. She's heard about their poverty, and she is moved with compassion, and she's going to Jesus saying, Jesus, would you do something? Because she doesn't want to see this family dishonored. She doesn't want to see the shame that they're going to experience. And so her heart is moved with compassion, and she goes to Jesus and asks him to do something. And after initially resisting, Jesus agrees, and he joins in. And he says, servants, uh, fill those six jars over there with water. The six jars would probably have been ritual hand-washing jars. So they would have been about 30 gallons of pop made out of stone. And as people walked into the wedding, uh, they would have washed their hands in them so they would be ritually clean. Jesus says, fill those six jars full to the brim. 
It would have taken them ages going back and forwards from the well. It wouldn't have happened just like that. But they'd have had to work hard to fill these stone jars. And then Jesus says to them, draw out some water and take it to the master of ceremonies. And by a miracle, I've never heard him cry before. He's so cute, isn't he? As, um, As the water is drawn out, suddenly, by a miracle of God's grace, it becomes wine. 613 bottles of wine, to be precise. That's a lot of wine, isn't it? That's a lot of wine. And not just any old wine, but the best wine. And it matters to us that it's wine. In the Old Testament, there are prophecies in Joel and in Amos about the new thing that God is doing being started by an abundance of wine. Wine dripping down from the mountaintops. And so at this point, right at the start of his ministry, Jesus is announcing the new thing that God is doing. He says, there is a new thing happening here in your midst with an abundance of wine, with friends sitting around a table, with joy and with laughter and with celebration because the kingdom of God comes about and when it comes, it always brings joy. Do you find joy in your life? Do you find meaning and purpose and hope in your life? It's so easy for us to do the serious things well, isn't it? It's interesting, when the archdeacon came last week and the bishop came, they'll compliment us for the work that we do in our community. And flipping well, they should. Because people in this church, we work really hard, don't we, to make a difference. We, we did a pantry forum on Wednesday. And um, people wrote down the difference that the pantry has made in their lives. And um, someone had written on their slip, because of the pantry, I can heat my home. And you think, flipping egg. This matters, right? The work that we do in our church, in our community, it matters and it makes a difference. And if that's the testimony of this church, that someone in our parish can heat their home because of the stuff that we do, man, we'll take that every day, right? But I wonder too what it would take for someone when they come to say, man, look at the work that we do in our community and look at the deep, deep joy. Look at the life that we experience in it and through it. I, um, I was standing behind Mary for communion at the nine o'clock this morning, and she put, she put her hands on Mo Jones's hips very gently. She started singing a little conga song, and I thought, man, there is joy in this church community as well, isn't there? We don't just know how to do the serious things well, but we can find joy and meaning, and we can really embarrass Mary whenever we want. I could say, I could say more embarrassing things, but I won't. We can find joy in so many things, can't we? We can find joy in dinner with friends. I find joy on a Thursday lunchtime because Thursday I bake bread. And I, if I time it right, I bake bread so it comes out of the oven just before lunch. And crucially, on a Thursday, the kids are at school and there's two ends to a loaf of bread, right? This is genius. There's two ends to a loaf of bread. And when bread's just been brought out of the oven, the ends are the bit that you want. And so I cut an end for me and I cut an end for Alice and we sit and we eat fresh bread together. Man, there is joy in that moment. There is joy for us as we decide we don't need to have the last words. There is joy for us as we decide to let the offense and let the wrong go. 
There is joy for us when we burst bubbles on our bum. There's joy for us in the winning goal. I was listening to Tottenham playing Man City last night, and when Tottenham put that ball in the back of the goal, meaning we have a title race on our hands, there was joy in the car. We find joy in so many things and in so many different moments if we'll stop to appreciate them and spot them and see them and treat them as the gift that they are. It's so easy for us to just take life seriously and to try and do the right thing all the time, but will you stop and see joy? Because the kingdom of God is close at hand in those moments and in those places. We find joy in doing the things that God calls us to do, in living our lives as an expression of who he's made us to be. Today is one year to the day since we started fostering May and Charlotte. And um, thanks. And um, for me, that's the expression of who God has made me to be. When I was 18 years old, I read the Bible, not quite for the first time, but not that far off. And, um, and there's a, a verse in the book of James that says, true religion in the sight of God the Father is caring for orphans and widows in their distress. And at 18 years old, it's very clear then what you should do for the rest of your life, right? You should care for children that can't live with their birth parents. And for me, that's the most obvious thing. We got asked by an, an assessing social worker why we, were, why we wanted to foster. And my response was, maybe it was Alice's response and I've stolen it, is that it's the only thing that makes sense. For me, it's the only thing that makes sense of my relationship with Jesus is to be a foster carer, is to welcome these kids into our homes and treat them like they're our own. And so today, we'll celebrate some of the sadness of not being able to live with birth parents, but also the joy of this new thing that God has brought together. Uh, we find joy in doing hard things too. We, um, a couple of weeks ago, we had six different social workers visit us across five days. Not a lot of joy in that. The following week, we had the same social worker call us twice a day for five days. By the 10th phone call, you want to get a new number so they can never contact you ever again. We can find joy in doing hard things too, right? There is so much joy for us in following Jesus. There's so much joy for us in the friendship that he has to offer, in treasuring the gifts of the different moments that he brings to us. But so often it's high ground, and we end up, rather than celebrating life as a joy and a gift, we end up sitting in judgment over other people for the way that they live, and we judge them for their relapse, and we sit in judgment over them for the job that they do, or for the home that they live in, or for the company that they keep, or for the way that they spend their money. And do you know what that does? All that does is when you take the more high ground, it elevates you above people, so you get to look down on them. And that creates a space between you and them where greed gets to creep in and jealousy and envy and hatred and bitterness and cynicism. And the more that we do it, the higher that we have to get to keep them at arm's length. But you know what? It's freaking impossible to love someone when you're busy doing that, isn't it? It's really, really hard to love someone when you're sitting in judgment over them. And that's a sin. It's the wide path. It's the wrong direction. It is anti-gospel. Because Jesus calls us to love each other, right? Not to sit in judgment, 
but to love and to celebrate each other. It doesn't mean you love everything that they do. It doesn't mean that you would make every decision that they would make, but that you get to enjoy the fullest relationship that you can share with them. We're called to live connected lives that are full of joy. There's been lots of conversations recently around church, as there should be, about what St. Andrew's looks like moving forwards. And um, one, one comment that I would add to that is it's easy for us to think that moving forward means doing more stuff. It's easy for us to think that moving forward means that we, uh, we start more mission communities, or we hire more staff, or we, we do more activity. Well, well, the best and the truest way to move forward is to grow in love, right? The best and the truest way to move forward is to grow in love for Jesus. It's to grow in love for ourselves as we take our discipleship seriously. It's to grow in love for our community. And that stuff might necessitate more of those things, right? We might discover as we do that that we need to start more mission communities, hire more staff, throw more fun days, do more stuff. But it should always come from and be prompted by the prioritization of our relationship with Jesus, our own discipleship and our love for the people and the community around us. And as we do that, we discover joy. Because you're not suddenly doing stuff because you really have to do it. You're doing it because you find joy in it. You find life in it. You find meaning and purpose in it. This morning, I want to encourage you to start with joy. To start with an abundance of water being turned into an abundance of wine, to start with celebration and hope and life, because that's where Jesus begins with his followers in his gospel, the gospel of John. Put down the weight of your aloneness and ease into the conversation. The kettle is singing, even as it pours you a drink. The cooking pots have left their arrogant aloofness and seen the good in you at last. All of the birds and creatures of the world are unutterably themselves. Everything is waiting for you. Let's, um, let's pray together. Would you stand with me as we do that? And we're gonna, um, we're gonna be still for a few moments as Sefa plays. And we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to come and fill us. Because we know that as the Spirit of God fills us, it brings the Spirit of joy too. Uh, so Holy Spirit, would you come and fill us today?
repent of taking ourselves too seriously. Of turning the thing that you gave to us as a gift into a grind. If you want someone to pray for you, then just come down the front and we'll, um, we'll get someone up. Um, if there's a, a picture or a word or a sense that you want to share with us this morning as we're worshipping, then make sure that you come uh, and give Blair a nudge and he'll give you the mic.